Our Father, we give you thanks for the day. We thank you for the rains that hold the promise of the blossoming of spring. And we're grateful for the way you refresh our lives through your word and spirit. And we pray we would know that refreshing now uh, as we turn to your word and the nature and calling of the church. We pray that we would be encouraged by your wisdom and graciousness to us and that we would be better fit as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And we ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. All right, before us is uh, the second part of our discussion of uh, the officers of the church. And then my hope is we'll press on into the church courts in particular, and we'll be looking at more at the structure of those courts. And then the week following, just to give you a sense of how the, they relate, We'll be looking at church courts again, but more how you engage in the uh, activities and efforts of church courts. Um, That's the theory, at least. Uh, So let me begin. We start with what, at least among Reformed folk, have been regularly called extraordinary officers. Then we'll go further and look at the ordinary officers. Uh, Extraordinary Uh, apostles and prophets, the ordinary uh, elders and deacons. So, um, the uh, New Testament is quite clear that the officers of the church are gifts of Christ to his church. They're to labor as servants of Christ for the sake of his people. You see this beautifully in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 10 and following. And uh, the extraordinary officers were temporary for a particular purpose. Uh, and I'm uh, using um, um, J. Aspinwall's Hodge, uh, What is Presbyterian Law is Defined by the Church Courts here, and it's a very, very helpful little book, and he does it as in a kind of catechetical form. And so he asks, by whom was the Christian church collected? And The answer is a quote from the 1788 Book of Church Order. Our blessed Lord at first collected his church out of different nations and formed it into one body by the mission of men endued with miraculous gifts, which have long since ceased. Uh, In the PCA, we have our own form of that uh, assertion in Book of Church Order 7.1. Under the New Testament, our Lord at first collected his people out of different nations and united them to the household of faith by the ministry of extraordinary officers who received extraordinary gifts of the Spirit and who were agents by whom God completed his revelation to his church. Such officers and gifts related to new revelation have no successors since God completed his revelation at the conclusion of the apostolic age. So, in the Reformed tradition, uh, there's no thought that there should properly be apostles or prophets. Um, The chief among them uh, in the founding of the church are the apostles. They're sometimes called the Twelve or the Disciples by way of preeminence. Uh, Their names are given in Matthew 10, 2-4. And after the death of Judas, Matthias was numbered with the eleven, as you see in Acts chapter 1. And Paul, who spoke of himself as one uh, who was, uh, as it were, untimely born, was specially called as an apostle, and particularly the apostle to the Gentiles. Uh, An apostle was an immediate messenger of Christ, a witness of his doctrine and resurrection. You see testimony to this in Acts chapter 1 at verse 21 chapter 20, and, and verse 22 and in 1 Corinthians 9, 1. The special work of the apostle was to testify concerning Christ, to be his witness in his name and by his authority to declare the doctrine, worship, and polity of the Christian church and to superintend its establishment and its extension. 
in the world. Uh, they weren't the only ones who were about this work. There were ministers, elders, and others called fellow servants in the New Testament. But uh, these were the foundation of the church. The particular gifts of the apostles were the promise uh, that Christ would work in them by the Spirit, that they would be able to recall and fully understand all that Christ was revealing, John 14, 26 and 16, 13. Sometimes this is called the power of inspiration. I've already spoken about how that's not the most apt word to describe this. It would be more that they would be subjects to expiration, the outbreathing of God uh, through uh, the Spirit to understand the things he had revealed. They had miraculous powers, and so too they could impart the Holy Spirit uh, through the laying on of hands. And these powers have ceased. Uh, miracles were intended to certify the messenger as having a special divine authority. You see that evidence in Nicodemus's confession to Jesus. We know you're a teacher sent from God, for no one could do the things you do, lest God were with him. Um, the uh, uh, special superintending of the Holy Spirit in their teaching and writing was to secure the infallibility as to the doctrine of Christ. And once the, once the church was established and furnished with the complete word of God for its only rule of faith and practice, the apostles' work was finished and their peculiar gifts were no longer needed. The church and the world has long recognized the fact of inspiration, miracles, and impartation of the Holy Ghost has ceased. Now, uh, Rome has, uh, for a long time, claimed a continuance of some version of these things, but not the full apostolic panoply. Uh, there were, uh, in, in the 19th century, a group called the Irvinites uh, came to, that there was a restoration of apostolic uh, offices and gifts. And at least with respect to the gifts, of course, the charismatic movement, most Charismatics, however, don't acknowledge any place for apostles, but they do claim uh, apostolic sorts of gifts. And the point is uh, that according to the Bible, uh, there are no successors to the apostles. It's obvious from the most basic characteristic they have to have known Christ. Uh, and nobody can be an immediate witness to Christ's resurrection and doctrine. Uh, or have his particular gifts, and uh, none can do the work that they were called to do. In fact, none other were appointed by Christ or recognized in the early church. Early church. False apostles and antichrists were foretold and rebuked. Um, but in any case, uh, the apostles um, uh, were the foundation of the church, and the church is to build on that. Um, so, the other extraordinary officers of the New Testament church um, differed from apostles in that their inspiration was occasional and therefore their authority as teachers was subordinate to the apostles. And you can see this in 1 Corinthians 14, 1 to 40. And sometimes in Acts of the Apostles, we see uh, that they were called upon to foretell future events. All of this has ceased with the completion of uh, inspiration, the canon of Scripture. Uh, Christ made no provision for their continued work, no way to recognize them in the church. After the apostolic age, uh, they ceased, and so have their qualifications, inspirations, and miracles. So that, that's the first point, and it's a, a critical point uh, for the life of the church, the peculiar uh, authority that apostles had, no one can have today. And to um, propose uh, further or alternative apostles is to propose, finally, apostasy and a rejection of the foundation that can't be laid again. So that would be the first point I'd like to cover. Does anybody have a question or comment about that? We're going to come back to the idea of the cessation 
of miraculous gifts related to revelation uh, under doctrine, because um, that's also a critical point of uh, this doctrine of scripture. So I won't go too much further into that, but will or Kate? Dave, what was the date of that the canon was fixed? Uh, there isn't any. Uh, well, if we knew when the last apostle died, we would know that. <laughs> um, the 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 fixing of the canon, it's an equivocal phrase. If you mean by the fixing of the canon, a time after which no more inspiration was given, that's the date we'd be talking about. Now, if you're talking ecclesiastically, it's um, uh, by the third century, there's a relatively fixed agreement, but the canon was fixed almost everywhere without any ecclesiastical adoption. Um, what we're talking about was an attempt at a universal uh, sort of declaration. Um, but anywhere the apostles had taught and had written, their writings were prized as canonical. It was the rule of faith and practice. And the churches communicated with one another. Some of the New Testament writings were circulars and so on. Does that help? Yes, thank you. All right, Paul or Lori? Uh, are you about to go on to uh, ordinary offices? I am. Okay, then I'll, I'll wait with my question. All right. Well, I'm happy to have a go at it now, if you'd like. What? Well, I just was curious, you know, someone like Luther... Um, is such an extraordinary figure in God's providence in the, the history of the church. Um, but I'm assuming he is categorized in, in, uh, as an ordinary, whatever the category, he's ordinary, not extraordinary. So that's sort of where my question is. Yes. Well, um, there, there was no doubt that God used Luther in such an extraordinary way. He didn't have an extraordinary office, but he used him in such an extraordinary way that there were those who spoke of it as an apostolic-type ministry, but not, not that he was, in fact, uh, an apostle. And for the chief reason is that you just can't have any more apostles given the criteria of the New Testament. Um, the... Uh, unless you wanted to claim, you know, a special revelation of Christ personally and calling the way Paul had. But Paul's the only instance in redemptive history that we know of that, so it would be uh, uh, a pretty strange phenomenon. And, of course, it would have to be authenticated with miraculous signs and so on. Does that? Yeah, that's, that's helpful. Thanks. All right. All right, the ordinary offices. Um, and first we'll take up the elders. Um, rule by elder prevailed among the Jews of the Old Testament in the synagogue worship. Um, and um, it's clear that uh, the apostles adopted that scheme for the government of the New Testament church. Um, the um, We hear... Uh, for example, of the elders of, the, of Israel being gathered together not too long ago in 1 Samuel 8. Uh, that's presbyterios, the Greek word translating the Septuagint, the um, Greek translation was the word that is taken over for use in the New Testament period. You can see the word used in the New Testament in Acts 4-5. Uh, speaking of the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law who met in Jerusalem. Again, the word presbyterios is the word that's used there. And we see that word then employed uh, in rule by elders established in the New Testament church. Acts 14.23, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders, presbyterios, for, for them in each church. 1 Timothy, excuse me, um, Philippians 1 1. Paul writes to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi. Together with the overseers, 
Here now the second word that um, is used for elders, um, episkopos, all the overseers and deacons. In 1 Timothy 5.17, we hear of the elders, presbyterios, who direct the affairs of the church. And when James in 5.14 is uh, seeking a ministry to the sick, he has folk call for the elders, presbyterios of the church. So you can see that it's a well-established teaching of the New Testament. Uh, But we do note that the term elder and bishop refer to the same office, whereas in the history of the church, Episcopal churches have uh, insisted that they were separate offices. Um, But the New Testament evidence, I think, is definitive on this question. Elder is, uh, presbyterios, is a, a common word in the Greek language, It doesn't have the technical sense that we have for it. It simply refers to maturity of age. But in our context, where we're speaking of an office, it refers to maturity of spiritual experience. And thus the word elder is used when the status of the office is in view. Ecclesiastically, the word elder is used when the status of the office is in view. Bishop, episkopos, refers to the nature of the work. Uh, that's why in the text I just cited from Philippians 1.1, we, it, it's translated the overseers, not the bishops, because what's in view there is the nature of the work to provide superintendence for the church. And you can see this demonstrably in three texts where the words are used alternatively in the same discussion. First is Acts chapter 20, verses 17, 18, and 28. In verse 17, Paul sends to the Ephesians for the elders of the church, Presbyterios. In verse 18, when they arrived, he said to them, Guard yourselves and all the flock, of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, episcopoi. In other words, if we um, translated it uh, in ecclesiastical terms, he made you bishops. He called for the elders and said, God has made you bishops, oversee the flock. The second is Titus 1, 5, and 7. He instructs Titus to appoint elders presbyterios in every town and then goes on to talk about their work verse 7 he says since an overseer episcopos is entrusted with god's work thus and so follows and then finally 1 peter 5 1 and 2 we hear peter speak to the elders among you presbyterios i appeal as a fellow elder Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as bishops, serving as overseers, episcopos. Those three texts, I think, uh, make it demonstrable that it's one office uh, with either function or status in view. Further, the one office of elder is divided by function into two classes. Now, there has been a little bit of a a difference among uh, Presbyterians, even American Presbyterians and old-school American Presbyterians. Some have thought that uh, there were three offices, minister, elder, and deacon. Uh, The view I'm presenting is that there are two offices, elder and deacon, and the office of elder is distinguished by function. Again, I think you can see this in uh, a text like 1 Timothy 5.17. Paul says, The elders, presbyterios, who direct the affairs of the church, uh, that is, who are ruling, are well worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. You have all elders who rule, but among the elders who rule, 
you have those who are specially devoted to the work of preaching and teaching. All have to be apt to teach, you remember, from uh, the two qualifications passage. But there are some who are not just apt to teach, but who devote themselves to that task. Um, The work uh, to be done, you see this beautifully in 1 Peter 5, 1 and following. Uh, he, He says that they're to shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but, for, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over your allotted charge, but rather providing an example to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. Um, this is reinforced beautifully in Acts chapter 20 at verse 17 when Paul makes his farewell to the Ephesian elders. He calls them to Miletus um, to meet with him, and he says, guard yourselves, excuse me, be on guard for yourselves and all the flock among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. In particular, the teaching elders have... um, a special function among the elders with respect to all Hebrews writes the writer of Hebrews says to us in 13:7 remember your leaders those who spoke to you the word of god consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith these are to devote themselves 1 Timothy 4:13 to the public reading of scripture to preaching and to teaching and this uh, group is to be nurtured in the life of the church, 2 Timothy 2, 2. The things you've heard from me, he says to Timothy, entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. And this uh, all-pervading work uh, leads Paul to teach that they are to be professionals in this. That is, they're to get their living through it. 1 Corinthians 9.14 So the Lord directed that those who proclaim the gospel get their living from the gospel. In Galatians 6.6 Paul teaches the church anyone who receives instruction in the word must share all good things with his instructor. Uh, It's interesting that when Paul talks about the payment of ministers he doesn't make any reference to the Levitical tithe as if they were to have a share in that. He does quote the Old Testament, however. In 1 Timothy 5.18, he quotes the Old Testament rule, don't muzzle the ox while he's treading, thereafter demonstrating the ox-like character of ministers of the word. Uh, But in any case, um, uh, then the power and authority of these elders it's absolutely clear that Christ is the head of the church. He has all authority on heaven and on earth. Um, He exercises that authority representatively by officers. Uh, As we saw before, Christ as king has given to his church a system of doctrine, government, and discipline and worship, all of which are set down in scripture He commands nothing to be added or taken away. Yet our Savior rules and instructs his people through the word and the spirit by the ministry of elders, thus immediately exercising his own authority, enforcing his own laws unto the edification and establishment of his kingdom. Since the Holy Scriptures are the only rule of faith and practice, The government of elders in the church is ministerial and declarative only, having no power to frame doctrine or to make laws to bind the conscience. Um, Well, um, how do God's people respond to this ministry? Well, according to the scripture, uh, they are to give honor to that ministry. the word honor in the New Testament means to grant moral weight or significance. Our 
word honorarium comes from the word. It, it means to value, uh, and in this case, uh, an inward reverence for God's sake. The Such elders uh, we saw in 1 Timothy 5.17 are worthy of a double honor. And uh, they're to be appreciated, as Paul says, at what, in 1 Thessalonians 5.12. We request, request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. We are to consider them and the result of their life and imitate their faith. So that's the first, to honor the eldership. Second, we're called to be submissive to the officers of the church. This is a general calling that we have toward one another in appropriate ways. Paul starts out speaking about this in Ephesians 5.21, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. But the officers of the church are to be submitted to as officers. Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would not be profitable for you. Greet all of your leaders and all the saints. Now we want to talk about this submission because it's important that it be properly qualified and understood. Uh, the um, manner of this submission is that in conscience before Christ, you are willing to regard his officer first formally submitting, meaning you antecedently grant the right for the officers to speak to you about who you are in Christ and how you ought to live. It means formally to attend to their words. Materially, it means you're willing to obey for Christ's sake if you're persuaded that that word is Christ's word, that they have held before you what Christ is calling you to do. So that at the end of the day, the submission is not to the officers, but rather it's submission to Christ. So formally, submission, willing to hear. Materially, willing to weigh and obey for Christ's sake if one sees it to be uh, uh, something Christ's word holds forth or uh, part of a due administration of the life of the church. Well, let me stop there for a second and see if you have any questions. It's a quick overview of these things. There are uh, many more things we could say about it, but I've given you, I think, the skeletal uh, structure that you can build from as you study the question further. Uh, Chambers. Hey, Dave. So basically, at the very beginning of this, talking about elder versus bishop and the terminology. Uh, elder is a more descriptive term for what actually is the governing practice. Because I know there are other churches that we have friends that are in that have bishops, and I've always equated them at the same level, but they don't really act the same. So it, it's confusing to me how they could be similar. Well, remember, what we're arguing is that in the New Testament, they're exactly the same office. The word elder is used when it's speaking of the status of the office, and the word bishop or overseer is used when you're speaking of the function of the office. So all elders are overseers, and all overseers are elders. Is it just... A translation of the word that makes it when it comes to, that, to English or is it, the, it has it has that both functions in the office but the terminology that we use is just more descriptive of part of what the office is is that what you mean do you understand me uh, not exactly let me see if I can think of an analogy um uh 
Um, the term chief executive and governor apply to exactly the same office in the uh, government of the state. Governor typically refers to status. Chief executive refers to function. They're two different words communicating different things about the one office in view, but they both refer to one and only office. Does that help at all? It does. It's just, I, I guess the, the confusion for me is that in the Presbyterian denomination, we don't use the word bishop. <laughs> we, that, that's only because uh, of polemics. <laughs> the, if you look at the, uh, uh, I'm almost sure the uh, Geneva translation of the Bible regularly translates episkopos with bishop. And they didn't wouldn't blink an eye at it, and there's no reason why we shouldn't, uh, except you know if you started calling uh, all the elders of the church bishops, they might start wearing chains and robes and <laughs> canonical hats and so on. So maybe there's a danger there. <laughs> I think you just answered my question. Yes. No. Sure. That's great, Bonnie. I think Steve Aiden is next, or some Aidens. Hey, hey. Hey. Um, when uh, the scripture, forgive me, I forget which verse it is, uh, states, um, obey your leaders and to submit to their authority. Uh, curious to know what the Greek is. And second, uh, if it is not the word pres- pres- for presbyters or the word for uh, the word episkopos, um, I presume it is the function of that office uh, that um, uh, merits that kind of respect, that kind of accountability and honor to that office. Is that how that uh, verse came to be understood? Yeah, I don't know the Greek offhand. Um, Steve, I'll be happy to look it up. It isn't within arm's reach. Um, but the there are many other uh, terms that are used with respect to this one office. Episcopos and Presbyterios are the two chief ones, but minister is another, leader is another, uh, uh, shepherd is another. Um, So there are lots of terms in play. Um, But you see that um, what follows submit to them for they keep watch over your souls. There's the overseer. So the function is the function of a bishop in this case, or the overseer, uh, spoken of as a leader. Does that help? Yeah, especially that's uh, very clear. Thank you. All right. Uh, Jenny, were you trying to get in? Not any longer, thanks. Oh, all right. Well, I'm going to press on to deacons, a second ordinary office. Um, It's interesting to note uh, that this office grows organically out of the circumstances of the early church. Um, If we're right that in Acts chapter 6 we see uh, the beginning of the office. You remember the circumstances? There were folks who had come into Pentecost from all over the the, church. Empire, and uh, you remember all the different languages that were being spoken, and suddenly a community is formed out of that group. And uh, we learned that, unfortunately, uh, there were obviously they understood that we've got a good group of people here, we don't have places to live, we've got to feed the group. And so the, they, the, the people themselves already know that they have an obligation to one another. They, they don't need to be taught that. They love one another, we want to serve one another. And so there are needy uh, widows in particular among them. And they're making provision for them. Uh, so the people already had taken up the work. The problem was with oversight 
uh, administration, it was alleged that some were being neglected. Some of the Greek-speaking women were being neglected. And they bring the matter to the apostles. Well, what did the apostles say? They say, appoint for you, for, for, from among you seven uh, p- people with wisdom and skill and so on, and we'll appoint them to this work because um, it's not something that we should take up. Uh, we must be devoted to, they say, prayer and the ministry of the word. Um, this is the foundation of the office of deacon. Um, but diaconal service already belongs to the body of Christ before there's ever an office of deacon. It belongs to the whole body of Christ after the pattern of her Savior as an outward expression of inward grace in evidence of and witness to love for the Lord in his people. That's a summary of about 10 or 15 scripture texts. But I think that the first principle is that diaconal service isn't a matter of an office. It's a matter of the obligation that believers have to love one another, uh, not only in spiritual things, but in, with respect to material needs. And that is a critical part of the living out of the gospel in the world. The second point then, diaconal service refers to the spiritual service of saints relieving each other in outward things as necessity requires and as prudence and the word of God directs. Now, this is uh, an expression of care with respect to this worldly things. The office of, we're not even to the office yet, we're still on just diaconal service. But I want you to notice this, that it is a spiritual thing to provide for this worldly needs, according to the scripture. When I was a kid, the office of deacon in the church that I grew up in had degenerated to this. It wasn't a spiritual office at all. It was the people who set up tables if there was a church dinner or who mowed the lawn or saw to the printing press in the basement and so on. But what, we, uh, what the Bible communicates is that this is a spiritual service. It, it, it's an expression of spiritual life, but it's with respect to caring for this worldly needs. Three, diaconal service must not violate a member's right to privacy, nor is it in conflict with the duty of each member to, quote, bear his own word, load, and, quote, work in a quiet fashion to eat their own bread. Nor do the obligations we have toward one another with respect to outward things, quote, take away or infringe the title or propriety which each man has in his own goods and professions. That's a quote from our Confession of Faith. Rather, such service must be offered with a sensitivity to those in need, voluntarily, from the heart, according to one's calling and ability, out of love for the Lord and his people. So that, fourthly, diaconal service as an expression of the communion of the saints is to be extended to members of the congregation and as God provides opportunity to all those uh, in every place who call upon the name of the Lord. That, again, is language from our Confession of Faith. Fifthly, diaconal servi- in diaconal service, the needs of the body are supplied when in humility each one is prepared to ask for help and both give and receive to the glory of Christ and the upbuilding of his church. Thus, sixthly, we insist that diaconal service is exercised representatively, first by individuals, next by a few together, and finally by the body through the officers appointed for that purpose, the deacons, to to administer the labor as need requires and prudence directs. Uh, So you see that um, this follows, I think, properly, 
the pattern of discipline in the church. It's first self-discipline, then it's a few together, and it's the body as a whole that takes up the question. So too with respect to the caring of the needs of the body. If I can take care of a problem, I see somebody in need and handle it myself, I should do that. But if it takes more than a few, I should get others. And if it requires the administration of the diaconal offices, then that rises to the level of the intervention of the congregation through the officers. Thus, we conclude, seventhly, the office of deacon is spiritual, one of sympathy and service after the example of the Lord Jesus. The office of deacon is not one of rule, which belongs to the eldership, but nor are the deacons the janitors of the meeting place. Rather, the deacon, with the assistance of qualified women in the congregation, is to be devoted to the equitable and orderly expression of the communion of the saints, especially in their helping one another in a time of need. And so the office of deacon is one of authority. It's administrative authority and helping to uh, uh, inspire and marshal and direct the energies of the congregation in, in caring for fellow believers. Well, with respect to these two offices, we, uh, the Bible teaches that there must be a sense of call. Christ appoints the office, and he calls the person who's an office holder to that office. The call is understood in our tradition, I think with biblical warrant, in three ways. Um, first, the inward call. And there are two elements. The inward call includes aspiration. Paul says if a man desires to be an overseer, he seeks a good thing. The Lord puts it in your heart that you would like to be used of him in this way. And then two, your conscience approves. In conscience before the Lord, you believe that you have the gifts and the uh, maturity to serve him in this respect. And that in, that constitutes an inward call. It's a providential call. It isn't Jesus speaking secretly in your voice, but rather it's a sound conclusion based on what scripture says and what you know about yourself. Then there's the outward call, and that has two parts. The approbation of God's people, that is, you're put before the congregation, and if the congregation agrees, Christ has been working in and through the congregation. And the second element of the outward call is the approval of a court of the church. That the the court of the church that has a responsibility for examining and ordaining people to the office also agrees. Inward call, outward call, inward call, aspiration, and conscience approving qualifications. Outward call, God's people recognize it, and a court of the church recognizes it. Um, That's a quick summary. There's a lot there to think about. Finally, the qualifications for officers. uh, They're found in 1 Timothy uh, 3 and Titus 1 and in Acts 6. It's interesting to note about these qualifications. They're largely moral. They have to do with the process of sanctification in your life. Second, it's interesting to note, this should it never be thought of as something unique to the elder or deacon, but rather every man in the congregation should be aspiring to have the qualities that are spoken of here. All it means is that you need to have been uh, um, sensibly on your way to growth and maturity with respect to those things. Uh, But it's not as if that's some unique quality of uh, the men called to the office. And uh, I think that's all that I'll say. Let me pause 
again. Oh, <laughs> uh, I, I, I had too much aspiration for <laughs> tonight. <laughs> but all right, Elias, I see your hand. Yes, um, they, you mentioned an inward calling and an outward calling. That is to say, the inward calling coming from the person. Yes. And the outward calling coming from the congregation. Is it possible that they are in conflict? Uh, they the never feel an inward calling, but the congregation says, yes, now what? Um, the, uh, it's very possible um, that they would be in conflict. Um, the, uh, it seems like Timothy's inward sense of call must not have been as strong as the outward sense of call. Paul and the church saying, this is what God has made you for. You ought to be doing it. He had doubts about himself and so on. So in God's providence, there'll be all kinds of variations on the themes of possibility. And it just means we bear with one another in love to help sort all of that out. Um, the, um, you know, for example, the outward call, two elements, the God's people receive the ministry. They see that's possible. They see you're accredited by the Lord in his providence to be useful. But the court of the church may not see that yet or may not see you qualified uh, doctrinally, for example. Or, um, and so there'd be a desire to work on that, to get a person to a place. So you, you make a great point. All kinds of possibilities for tensions, but all of it can be worked on and perhaps get from one place to another. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Other questions on this? All right. Well, it's it's uh, eight twenty. Um, I'm I'm going to start and see how far we can get. I'm clearly not going <laughs> to finish this tonight. So let's press on, church courts in particular, session, presbytery, and general assembly. Um, The most general thing uh, that we want to say here is that God has appointed the government of his church to be through assemblies of elders. Though officers have certain individual functions, teaching, administering the sacraments, governmental power in exercise belongs to assemblies of elders, not each individual elder. Stuart Robinson in his Church of God put it uh, flatly, not a case can be found in all of scripture in which an ordinary office bearer ever exercised jurisdiction alone but always as one constituting the, a member of a tribunal. I, th- I think that's a, a sound uh, assertion based on the evidence of Scripture. Our Book of Church Order puts it this way in five: Ecclesiastical jurisdiction is not a several, that's an older way of saying individual, but a joint power to be exercised by pre- presbyters in courts. These courts may have jurisdiction over one or many churches, but they sustain as much mutual relation as to realize the unity of the church. Here we have the doctrine of presbytery. Uh, That comes uh, from the same Greek word uh, for elder, presbyterios. Um, And um, the Every assembly of elders could be properly called a presbytery. But for convention's sake, since that would be very confusing, we use different terms. But the point I'm emphasizing here is they're all presbyteries. They're all assemblies of elders. We call the local assembly of elders for one congregation a session. We call the regional the presbytery. And we call 
you, you, you could have a synod would, would be the next stage if you had it, a larger denomination, and then usually an assembly, although some people call it a general synod. But these are all terms of art. They're all nothing other than assemblies of elders. And thus, uh, uh, James Thornwell, who is an extraordinary student of this subject, uh, insisted that um, here you could summarize Presbyterianism. Church government by parliamentary assemblies composed of two classes of presbyters and presbyters only, and so arranged to realize the visible unity of the whole church. Now, uh, here the word parliamentary means deliberative. It's a deliberative assembly of elders. Um, the, um, so, as I said, congregation, uh, under local assembly, session, the region presbytery, the uh, uh, national level um, general assembly. This system is uh, brilliant, as you would expect from the Lord of the universe. Uh, there is local self-government, which is the most important uh, exercise. You want the government to be closest to the people that need the governing because they have to have practical experience. At the same time, you have efficiencies for large problems that come through central authority both needed for any wholesome government and this system built to sustain such a thing as that. Each court has all the essential powers of an assembly of elders. Those powers are limited in exercise by a compact, what we call a constitution, an agreement that it wouldn't make any sense for the local assembly of elders to be able to amend the constitution for the whole church. It only makes sense for the largest expression of elders to do that. It wouldn't make any sense for the largest expression to admit members into the church. Rather, the best exercise of that power of elders is at the local uh, session. Um, it's been put this way, um, and I love this phrase, but sometimes it can be kind of mind-bending, but the General Assembly in 1879 of the PCUS put it this way, the power of the whole is in every part, but the power of the whole is over the power of every part. Part. Now that, that in perhaps a, a, a quizzical way, but um, in other words, we, we've wanted to say that the power of Christ in the church lies in the commonwealth, the whole body of the faithful, the ruled and those who rule. And the power of an assembly of elders is in every assembly of elders. The power of the whole is in every part. But the power of the whole is also over the power of every part, so that there is an arrangement of governance from local to regional to national. Um, now, we want to be careful here because there are some parallels to uh, the American idea of federal government. And uh, it's no surprise that it should be so because there are American Presbyterians intimately involved in that project. And they were in Philadelphia at the same time the Constitution was being written. But Charles Hodge described it this way, and let me, and maybe I'll, yes, I'll quit here. Uh, let me read you a portion of uh, something he wrote in 1865. According to our theory of civil government, all power resides in the people. Legislative bodies and executive officers are delegates of the people and possess no prerogatives not specially granted to them. Our written constitutions, therefore, national and state, 
are the measure of the power confided to the public servants of all classes. This theory has been transferred, unfortunately, to the church. It is a popular idea that church courts derive their authority from the people and that our constitution and form of government are the instruments by which that power is conveyed and the measure of its extent. According to this theory, a session would have no rights to receive members into the communion of the church or to exclude them from it if the Constitution did not so appoint. This is not Presbyterianism. Church courts are of divine appointment. They derive their power from Christ through his written word. The Constitution is not a grant of powers, but an agreement between different presbyteries and other church courts as to the manner in which the inherent authority as a court of Christ shall be exercised. The limits assigned to the powers of church courts are all determined directly or indirectly by the word of God. Deriving all their authority from that source, they can rightly claim nothing but what is therein granted. Well, that was a long quote and maybe too complicated. Uh, but I'll quit there uh, for tonight. And if you have questions, comments, anything you'd like to throw in here, I'm happy for them. Jason, I see uh, your window saying ask to unmute. Are you communicating that? I I've not seen that sign before. Oh, well. No, sorry. I, I might have hit a wrong button that I don't know about. No, no. I'm uh, Jason, I <laughs> I forgot I have two Jasons here. I was talking to Jason DeMarco. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> uh, nope, I didn't do anything either. All right. <laughs> You're both absolved. Anyone, a question, comment? Well, you've been... Uh, Steve? Steve, oh, um, I really, really want to get my head around that Hodge quote. Um, you know, because, uh, well, uh, here, I'll, uh, put it in the chat, maybe. That's, that was what I was going to ask. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, I think it's important and, uh, perhaps even critical. Um, so I will marinate in it for a while. Yeah, here, let me, um. You know, I'm I'm just going to start to get proficient with this when the time comes for us to not do it anymore. <laughs> All right, it's not willing to take it. Hold on, let me try again. No, it must it must be too long. I'll um, I'll I'll send it out uh, on an email as soon as we quit here. I appreciate that, and I say that because it um, it's a way I think of responding to those who see the um, government of the local church as a representative uh, government. Our you know our brothers in the Baptist Church, for right. example. Right. Yes. Um, so, uh, yeah, I will look forward to that. Thank you. All right, great. Anybody else before we before we go? Well, thank you all uh, f for being here tonight. I look forward to next week, and uh, it's I think still humanly possible that I catch us up. So, I'm going to keep trying. <laughs> all right, let me pray for us.
Father, again, we admire uh, the wisdom of the way you've ordered our lives together as members of the body of Christ. We thank you that um, we are under a wholesome government. We're we are much more than a government, but um, how wonderful that um, you have cared for our needs uh, through um, a structure, officers, relationships, um, and uh, you've blessed this uh, for many years, and we'll continue to build your church until the day our Lord returns. So help us to um, embrace these truths, to learn to live well and practically by them, and uh, in so doing, to build one another up and glorify our Savior. And we ask it in his name. Amen.